This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there. Very shortly on the Country Hour, you will find out about this Perth-based company that thinks there's still some life in a mothballed diamond mine. It's the Merlin Diamond Mine, and it's just near Buralula in the Northern Territory. And this company has snapped up the mine for $8.5 million. You'll find out about the plans the company has for that. Exploration-wise, will it be drilling some uh, new holes, searching other holes that other companies have done in the past? You'll find out before news headlines at half past 12. Also today, this is after the news headlines today, you'll take a closer look at the centre pivots that are going on here in Western Australia. Now, they're pretty common in Western Australia's north and a good reason for that. There's a lot of water around in parts of northern Western Australia. Less common further south in the state, but one or two are starting to pop up here and there. So a good look at the use of those centre pivots in agriculture here in WA after half past 12. This is the Country Hour on ABC right across WA, six past 12. An Esperance-based shed builder has become the first person in Western Australia to be jailed for gross negligence under tougher workplace safety laws introduced in 2018. In the Esperance Magistrates Court yesterday, Director of MT Sheds, Mark Thomas Withers, was sentenced to eight months jail and fined over $600,000 following the 2020 death of a young worker and the serious injury of another. The men had been building a shed on a farm just east of the coastal town. Executive Officer of Safe Farms WA, Marie Gooch, says the sentence is a timely reminder to farmers to get their safety procedures in order ahead of new industrial manslaughter laws set to come into place later this year. I think it's really important that farmers get their safety systems in place. I think it's really important that they be aware that the new legislation is coming. By the way, we're still operating under the OSH Act of 1984 until the new work health and safety legislation, which has been through State Parliament, actually comes in. But we're anticipating that that will be later in the year, and that's come from the Commissioner of WorkSafe. I think it's really important as well to realise that effective immediately in October of 2018, the penalties for breaches to overarching work health and safety legislation we're aligned to the rest of Australia here in WA. So the penalties that have been handed down are aligned with the rest of Australia and they have been in place since October 2018. So there's a number of layers there that people just probably aren't aware of. It's not something that's on our radar. There are 18 pieces of legislation that cross over many farming businesses and this is one. It's a tragedy that's happened you know, very much condolences and sincere sympathy to the family who lost their dad and the other injured worker and also to the family of the business and um, the person who will go to jail and the significant fine going forward because two families lose their dad. 
Murray, when we look at this case, it was obviously a, a construction company, a, a shed builder, but it happened on a farm east of Esperance. Going forward under this new legislation, if farmers do employ a contractor, I mean, where, where do their responsibilities lie? According to the legislation, both current and the new work health and safety legislation, as employers, we must provide a safe workplace. We must do inductions and we must provide training and information. So they're the, the clear messages in the, in the legislation. And as employees, we must be safe in the workplace and ensure, so that's for our own personal responsibility and safety, and we must ensure that the workplace is safe for others that we are working with as well. When it comes to contractors, the contractor must deem the workplace to be safe because ultimately they're the employer potentially of those doing the work for the contractor. So there can be a bit of a blurring of the lines when it comes to insurances and responsibilities and liabilities. So for farmers and other business owners, we certainly suggest that you would do a site induction and then um, have the contractor do the induction and make sure the contractor's workers do the inductions. By doing inductions, you find out where the skills and the knowledge gaps are. Then, as per legislation, can provide the training and information. There's a hierarchy of control that is used when managing risk and assessing hazards and assessing risk and then starting to control those risks. And engineering controls are at the top and it's sort of an up-inverted pyramid, so think an upside-down pyramid. And then at the bottom is PPE. So at the very, very last and the least is where personal protective equipment is provided. When people are working at heights, anything above two metres, you need a licence to be working at heights. So most farmers may not realise that if you are working above two metres, you need a working at heights licence. If you're driving a forklift, you need a licence. So there's a number of things that probably farmers need to realise and sort of get educated on what licences apply and where that fits in their farming business, not sort of thinking, oh, my gosh, here I am, this is so onerous, I'm worried about compliance with this and compliance without an audit and quality assurance and all that sort of thing. It's just the way of the world now. So we as employers must be safe in the workplace and then we as employees, we must be safe in the workplace and look out for each other too. You mentioned it is really the way of the world these days, Marie, and it's very different looking at work health and safety versus insurance. You know, you can sort of have all the insurance in the world, but can you actually protect yourself? That's a really tricky question to answer, Tara, and I would defer to an insurer. There are very different kinds of insurances that you can have, management liability, workers' compensation, equipment insurances. By doing inductions and providing that training and information, the induction shows you the knowledge gap, so then you actually understand how people might be thinking and their approach to risk. Are they a risk taker? Do they rush through things? Are they methodical? Are they careful? I think a really important thing is to realise that there are a lot of good farmers out there doing really good work and they do have systems in place. And part of their operations when they start their work, say, on a Monday morning, is that it might be an operations meeting, but they add in a little bit about safety. You know, change takes a long time, and this catalyst, this tragic catalyst that we're talking about today, will become one of those. Marie Gooch from Safe Farms WA with Tara Delangraft. 12 past 12.
You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. A WA company has purchased the mothballed Merlin Diamond Mine near Boralula in the Northern Territory for $8.5 million. The Lukapa Diamond Company is based in Perth and has operations overseas in Angola and Lesotho. In a statement to the ASX, Lukapa says it's agreed to buy the Merlin project and will now look to raise $20 million to develop the mine and also do a little further exploration work. If the project is successful, it will be Australia's only operating diamond mine after the famous Argyle mine closed late last year. Managing Director Stephen Weatherall says Merlin is a really good fit for the company's growth strategy. We've um, uh, you know, developed some, some very good assets uh, in the last six, seven years. We have got the number one and number three highest priced diamond productions globally. But we, we also do have an eye on growth. One of those uh, growth areas is, is certainly, you know, one looking at projects around the world and, and seeing what we believe would be a complementary fit to our existing profile. One such project is, is the Merlin operation uh, in the Northern Territory. It's certainly well known in our industry. It is historic. It's a large stone producer and, and most famous uh, in our industry for producing uh, Australia's largest diamond on record, a 104-carat Type 2A diamond. But, uh, you know, very importantly for us, it's not just the individual sporadic diamonds that we look after. We're also interested in the general uh, production and uh, what else we can recover. And in that regard, there's some, uh, you know, four million carats uh, in a jork resource there that, uh, you know, we've uh, analyzed and and we believe we can extract economically and, uh, you know, for for many, many years to come. So certainly um, a a good addition and a significant addition to our overall uh, asset portfolio. How big of a role did the closure of the Kimberley's Argyle diamond mine play in the company's decision? We look at uh, all projects around the world um, all the time. One has to in our game. It's, it's not often that good diamond projects uh, do come up for sale. But certainly we know the uh, closure of Kimberley some years ago, as, as well as Argyle last year, leaves, leaves a hole um, in uh, Australia's diamond production. For Australia to go from certainly being top five, top six producer in the world when Argyle was in operation to producing no diamonds, certainly is, is not a good statistic. So hopefully within the next couple of years, we're going to turn that around and, and put Australian diamonds back on the map. Lou Carper's paying $8.5 million for the mine. Is that a cheap diamond mine? I'm not going to say cheap. I'm going to say certainly the, the money that we have offered the liquidators uh, for the, the lease and peripheral assets is certainly an attractive price to acquire the project at. We certainly have uh, bought mines that are in different different jurisdictions as well, and and most certainly the price that we have offered is an attractive price for us. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't think uh, cheap is what you can call it. it it's still eight and a half million Australian dollars. <laughs> can you tell us a bit about Lucarpa's plans for the mine going forward now? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, you know, we we are going to conclude the uh, acquisition with uh, with our, uh, our counterparts. Uh, as soon as we can get on the ground, we want to go and uh, continue with our investigations and studies that uh, are already on the go. We'd like to get on the ground and do the geotechnical drilling, uh, the exploration drilling, and uh, you know, firm up on our, on our studies. In terms of the overall development, absolutely. There are 10 
pipes there that uh, form the resource and, and obviously one has to order those appropriately to ensure we, we extract um, you know, the maximum amount of value from those resources. What we'll also do is obviously um, speak with our new partners and our, our new stakeholders uh, in the operation as well. Certainly um, the uh, native title um, uh, stakeholders as well and our, our Aboriginal counterparts we will go and uh, work with. Uh, we obviously are going to have to work with the Department of Mines there as well. So we want to just get on the ground as soon as we can to, to form those relationships and, and work with everybody to ensure that uh, you know, we, we put uh, a good operation in tow that uh, is also very good for the community and brings economic activity back to, to that area. Will you be going back into old holes or are you, or are you breaking new ground? We do hope to, to break new, new ground, but the resource is built up on uh, Kimberlite pipes that uh, already exist. Yes, uh, in days gone by, Ashton and Rio Tinto have mined them, um, but they mined them to a level. We've certainly assessed uh, you know, what, uh, where they've mined to and, and what uh, lies beneath it. And we think we can uh, re-engage it and certainly reopen a, a number of those pipes. But uh, Dan, also on that ground are a significant number of uh, unresolved anomalies. And, uh, you know, we want to go and have a look at those and you know, do some, some good work on those to see if we can convert those into discoveries and uh, add them to the resource in due course. If all goes to plan, when do you hope to be extracting the first diamonds? We hope to be uh, on the ground uh, ASAP, finish our studies. And, uh, you know, from our perspective, we're going to set ourselves a target of, of being production, in production, um, you know, within the, the first 24 months. What's the demand for diamonds like at the moment? Are there people buying diamonds during a pandemic? Uh, no. Um, look, Dan, um, the pandemic for the diamond industry was, was not very good with uh, various border closures, constraints on personnel and uh, inability to, to fly to the diamond market certainly put our industry in a bad way. Um, having said that, through the course of, of, or should I say the height of the pandemic, you know, consumption still happened. People were forced to stay at home. But instead of going to the bricks and mortar shops, they, they went online. So whilst uh, the pandemic sent people home, um, consumption still occurred. And in our industry, where there was a high level of polished inventories, those inventories were um, depleted uh, quite significantly. So when uh, the world economy started to open up again and uh, diamond demand uh, uh, returned, there were no inventories to feed that. So certainly our industry has emerged very, very buoyant, so much so that just this year, diamond prices are up uh, some 13%. So, look, we are um, in a good uh, position. Our industry is, is well balanced and we see uh, near, near-term support for um, you know, prices um, over the next two to three years. Stephen Witherall, he's the Managing Director of Lucapa Diamonds, speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. And you can read more about the story. It's online for you now. Search Merlin Diamond Mine ABC and you will find the story and get a closer look at that biggest diamond that was found in Australia. A close-up look at that one. This is The Country Hour, 20 past 12. The mine has quite the history. It was once owned by Rio Tinto, as you just heard, but was put up for sale because its most recent owner, Melbourne businessman Joseph Gutnick, declared bankruptcy in 2016 and his company was wound up on federal court orders just last year. And as Stephen was just telling you, the Merlin mine became famous in 2002 
when it unearthed Australia's biggest ever diamond, that white, rough diamond that was 104 carats in size. So where is this huge diamond now? Well, some of it ended up in Kununurra. To tell you the story, here's Helen Thorne from Kimberley Fine Diamonds. We have or had a beautiful piece of that diamond. So it was originally 1.104, sorry, 0.73 carats in the rough. And we have 1.13 carats in a beautiful white marquee diamond that was laser inscribed and, and produced by Rio Tinto well, back in the mid-2000s, I guess. So that big diamond uncovered, what, in 2002, it, it was sort of split up and, and sent all over the place, was it? Well, rough diamonds generally are um, broken down when they're cut, so they can lose anything up to, you know, maybe 70% of a rough diamond in the cutting process, but a diamond so large would very possibly have been cut into several stones. Um, I've heard of other large diamonds being cut into a number of gem-quality stones, so it looks like they would have got several pieces out of this. If you imagine a carat of diamond only being 0.2 of a gram, 100 carats of rough diamond starts to be something you can actually feel in your hand when you're holding onto it. And you said sometimes they can lose 70% of of the diamond during this process. Yeah, yeah. So, um, As in like 70 groups... carats get thrown into the bin? Well, not necessarily thrown into the bin. I suppose that, you know, when they're cutting diamonds, a lot of the product, you know, they use diamonds to cut diamonds, so that would cause a lot of carbon dust. Mm. Um, there might be little pieces that they can use in industrial purposes, you know, for your drill tips and your saws and and, and other cutting tools, I suppose. Um, we were lucky enough to be gifted some old cutting tools from the Argyle Pink Diamond Cutting Factory that was has just recently closed down in Perth. And, you know, they've got pieces of rough diamond in them that have been used for many years to cut some of the world's most valuable and and rare pink diamonds. So, yeah, they've got lots of purposes, rough diamonds, that's for sure. And so this special little piece that originated from the Merlin mine in the Northern Territory, I guess it could have been sold to anyone, but it has stayed in Kununurra, hasn't it? Yes, yes, it has. And it, it, it's a very nice story because it actually belongs to quite an old Kununurra family. I'm sure the beautiful lady that owns the um, diamond is very proud of it, but I'll just keep keep those details at that for now, Matt. <laughs> That's okay. But, yeah, it's, it's there in Kununurra. And... And on the hand, I assume, is it? Yes, it is. It's yeah. worn very proudly on, on her hand. It's a it's a beautiful diamond. And just the story of it, you know, um, we, uh, in my time at Kimberley Fine Diamonds, we weren't really offered any Merlin diamond product. I mean, the, the mine was run in those days by Rio Tinto, the operators of the Argyle Diamond Mine as well. So, you know, it, it's really nice to have a, or to have had a piece, another piece of diamond history come out of an Australian diamond mine. And so, Helen, as someone who manages a diamond store, and with Argyle closing last year, how big a news is this that Merlin might be restarting again? Oh, 
look, to date, to be honest, today's the first time I've heard of it. I, I am a, a bit of an avid follower of of other diamond mines in Australia for obvious reasons. But um, with with being so busy for the muster this week, I, I missed this announcement. But I am very excited to know that we could be able to source more Australian diamonds in the future because that's what Australians and my international customers, that's what they want. They want Australian product. And whilst we have one of the largest collections of Argyle diamonds probably in Australia now, it will be so nice to be able to source other Australian diamonds either from the Merlin mine or perhaps over somewhere else in the north of the Kimberley like uh, Ellendale over near Derby in the future. Helen Thorne, she's the manager of Kimberley Fine Diamonds, speaking to Matt Bran. And I wonder who that person is walking around with that gorgeous diamond on her finger, that little chunk of history right there on your hand. Wouldn't that be lovely? And if you want to read more about the story, the WA company, Lucapa Diamond Company, picking up the Merlin Diamond Mine in the Northern Territory, as I mentioned before, just search Merlin Diamond Mine ABC and it will be right there in front of your eyes 26 past 12 here on the Country Hour, just before the news headlines today. For a group of farmers in southern Queensland, the past six years have been a story of no water, no growth and no end in sight. After six years of reduced water allocations due to the drought, South Burnett farmers are now desperate to get their hands on more water. But as Megan Hughes reports, that could take years And without water, the region faces an uncertain future. Peter Renkelman has been growing cotton and grains at Silverleaf, northwestern Mergen, for decades. He had a good crop this season, no thanks to his irrigation. We've had good crops in the last few years and we've had a good crop again this season here now. Um, We ran out of water, but the rain came at the critical time and uh, made a difference to the crops and so we finished up with quite successful crops. Obviously doing quite well despite the ongoing drought. Oh yes, well that's the beauty of irrigation. It costs a lot of money but if we can get enough water at the right time to supplement the rainfall events then we can be quite successful as we've found this year. He's in the Barker-Baramba water supply scheme, which pulls from Bajocchi peterson Dam. After the predicted La Nina weather event didn't deliver, the dam is only sitting at 7.9% capacity. Further south in Moffatdale, fish farmer David Rose is also facing another dry year. We do have an allocation from Bajocchi Dam, but that will be non-existent after the end of June. Unless there's inflow, we won't have any water out of Bajocchi next year. I have three bores on the farm which accumulate in the big dam down the bottom there that we're looking at. And we're about to drill another bore back up closer to the house trying to find water deeper down. And basically next year we're going to be struggling for water if we can't get something better from deeper down. A feasibility study looking at the water issues through the entire Burnett is in its final stages. South Burnett Mayor Brett Otto says it's been narrowed down to five projects, including the Barlil Weir, a water storage farmers have been asking for that would be built on Baramba Creek near Mergen. Now council has to decide what to prioritise. 
yeah, look, it could be that uh, there's, a, there's more than one project that gets progressed through to stage three, which is the detailed business case. Having reliable water would completely change the region, according to Mayor Otto. You know, we, we've got a $360 million economy in agriculture. We think that that's the potential to grow up to half a billion dollars. I, I have no doubt, Megan, that we could double our agricultural GDP coming out of our region over the next 10 years if we can get access to water. Barker Baramba Irrigators Advisory Committee Chair Stuart Nicholson says farmers need to know how much water they're getting. Our scheme reliability is somewhere on the 76% officially, but our, our pumped reliability, if you look at what's actually been pumped, the figures I've got go back is 2003, and we're only able to pump 36% of that allocation. Yeah, there's, there's a big discrepancy there, and nobody can build an industry with the, all the inputs and the, and the loans and everything that goes into the industry on a 36% reliability. So we've got the figures to, to show kind of month by month as it's, as it's happened. And yeah, we just need more water. Barco Baramba Irrigators Advisory Committee Chair Stuart Nicholson finishing that report from Megan Hughes. 29 past 12 and continuing the conversation about water after the news headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology. But continuing that conversation, not in southern Queensland, but over here in Western Australia, and you'll hear how some WA farmers are trying to drought-proof their properties and add some certainty to production. What they're doing is investing hundreds of thousands of dollars into centre pivot irrigation. It's not an option for everyone, but you might be surprised to hear where some of these farmers are here in WA who are pursuing this centre pivot irrigation option. That's to come on the Country Hour, but at half past 12, time for an update from the newsroom with Garrett Mundy. Thank you, Belinda. In the news this afternoon, the WA Health Minister, Roger Cook, says a decision will be made later today on how the state will respond to reported cases of COVID-19 in Melbourne. The current advice is for anyone who's visited any of the known exposure sites during the relevant times to get tested immediately and self-quarantine for 14 days from their date of exposure. The acting Chief Health Officer is being briefed by his Victorian counterpart today. The mother of a soldier killed in a defence live firing exercise has spoken of her grief in Darwin's local court. The Defence Department has pleaded guilty today to a workplace safety failure over the death of Jason Chalice in 2017. In a victim impact statement read aloud in court, Private Chalice's mother Helen Brandich said his death put a huge strain on her family, especially his siblings, and had left a hole in their hearts. And the father of a journalist who was arrested after his flight was diverted to Belarus fears his son may be tortured. 26-year-old Roman Protesevich was on a flight from Greece which was rerouted to Minsk on Sunday over a supposed bomb threat. Bomb threat. Western countries accused Belarus of hijacking the Ryanair plane in order to arrest the dissident reporter. More news at one o'clock, Belinda. Thank you for that update, Garrett. It's 29 to 1. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. As I said, really focusing in on centre pivot irrigation here in Western Australia. What's going on? What's been done? And what are the plans ahead, not only in the north of the state, but much further south? Also, off to Muche again today. John Testro along just before the news at one. He'll go through the yarding and the prices for you uh, from the sheep sale today. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Adam Conroy is with you this afternoon. Adam, how's it looking around the southwest land division? 
Well, things are settling down a bit. Uh, still some showers along the south coast in an onshore flow, but uh, there's a high-pressure ridge developing over the south of the state, so north of the south coast and some pretty clear skies. Um, so we're going to sort of go into a settled couple of days before the next weather system comes in. Uh, so that high will move into the bite tomorrow. Winds will tend more northeastly, so we'll see those south coastal showers clear, uh, certainly by sunrise tomorrow. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, it should be uh, pretty well, generally sunny across the southwest land division, although there will be some high clouds streaming in during the afternoon and evening over western parts. Uh, tomorrow morning probably won't be as cool as some places had this morning, so not expecting there to be any real risk of frost uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, there is a cold front that will approach. So on Thursday, it's still going to be well to the west, but we'll see... Uh, an onshore stream develop around the southwest Cape, so a bit of shower activity through there on Thursday. Uh, ahead of the cold front, there's also a trough developing off the west coast, and it's going to link up with some tropical moisture to the north, so that's sort of leading into a bit of thunderstorm activity over the latter days of the forecast. We'll probably see those storms reach the far north of the central west late on Thursday night. And then they should gradually extend from the north throughout the southwest land division during Friday into Saturday morning. Uh, so with the thunderstorm activity having a tropical sort of link and uh, sort of spending a couple of days over the southwest land division, there should be pretty widespread rainfall from it in general, uh, even though thunderstorms do tend to be hit and miss. Uh, this one should have enough activity that most places get a bit of rain uh, across sort of Friday and Saturday, most of the southwest land division should get in the order of 10 to 30 millimetres. There might be some sort of areas slightly less than that that end up sort of missing the activity from the trough and the approaching cold front. But generally, I'd expect those figures through most places. And uh, with the moisture in these thunderstorms, we're also likely to get some areas that get isolated falls in excess of 50 millimetres uh, as those thunderstorms move through. In terms of the cold front, uh, that's... It's not really the most significant feature because of all the moisture coming ahead of it, but it will uh, reach the southwest capes early Saturday morning and then th move through during Saturday. So that's sort of uh, what's what's keeping the activity going for, for a couple of days. Uh, we will see probably an easing trend from the west during a Saturday afternoon as that front moves through, although there is a bit of uncertainty with the low-pressure system developing behind the front. So if that does happen, we might see... Uh, still through Saturday afternoon and evening, the showers and thunderstorms just continuing about the southwest coast. Uh, but yeah, overall it's uh, looking uh, pretty promising if you want a bit more rain to follow up on the previous system. No, I don't think there'll be any complaints <laughs> about that, really. Um, into northern and eastern parts of the state, any of that rain getting into those parts? Yeah, it will. Uh, certainly it's uh, coming from the north, so it is uh, looking useful through particularly the West Pilbara and Gascoyne. At the moment, uh, it's generally clear over the north of the state. Uh, I suppose in the east there's a bit of stream showers in the Eucla on along the coast. Uh, there is a cloud band currently sitting over the eastern Pilbara. It's uh, looking like it's mostly producing verga at the moment, maybe a few spits of rain around Port Hedland Way, but uh, not too much in it. But it will thicken up a little bit overnight tonight. Uh, so we will see some patchy rain extend through the eastern Pilbara and north interior overnight tonight into tomorrow and then it should contract away and clear later in the day tomorrow. Probably not too much out of that in terms of rain hitting the ground because there's fairly dry air underneath and fairly brisk easterly winds and uh, that'll be the case again tomorrow morning. Some gusty easterly winds, particularly over the Pilbara and West Kimberley. Uh, with this trough developing off the west coast, we 
could see some shower and thunderstorm activity reach northwest Cape very late tomorrow or early on Thursday morning and then should extend slowly at first uh, during Thursday uh, through the western Pilbara and western Gascoyne uh, and then sort of heading into Thursday night, Friday is when it really uh, starts to enhance uh, ahead of that approaching cold front. So during Friday, uh, the showers and thunderstorms should extend through the remaining Gascoyne and reach the western goldfields later in the day. And then by Saturday midnight, a uh, band should have moved so that it really runs through any area west of around Port Hedland down towards Eucla. And similar to the southwest land division, a lot of places, particularly through the West Bilber and uh, through the Gascoyne, will get in the order of 10 to 30 millimetres out of the, the system. And uh, the potential for isolated falls in excess of 50 millimetres with thunderstorms. Uh, even on the West Pilbara coast, uh, being sort of coming straight off the water there, we might even see some localised heavier falls from thunderstorm activity. So, yeah, fair bit of rain through, yeah, not just the southwest land division coming up. And it sounds like there may be some warnings ahead in the next few days, but is there anything about this afternoon, Adam? Well, we've had strong winds off the Pilbara and West Kimberley coast this morning. That is just in the process of easing, but uh, expect, expect a similar area of strong winds tomorrow. So warning is out for that. As far as this system goes in any severe weather coming up on Friday and Saturday, it's probably more going to be localised to any sort of intense thunderstorm activity. So we'll sort of see how that goes. But hopefully for most people, it's uh, a good bit of rain without uh, any any much in terms of really significant wind or anything like that. So that would be good if that happens. Well, it certainly sounds that way at the moment. Thank you so much for the update, Adam. Appreciate that. 22 to 1. Taking a look at the rainfall figures overnight, here's Richard Hudson. Don't you love that word verga that Adam just mentioned? I just Googled it and was quite surprised at the definition that I saw. So you might have got the spelling wrong. If you want to check it out. <laughs> if do you're not that. sure, it's, uh, it's rain that evaporates before it hits the ground. I reckon it would make quite a good nickname for a footy player, someone who's um, promising and maybe not quite delivering. How yeah, do anyway. you spell it? It's V I R G A. That's where I went wrong. Yeah, kids don't do this uh, <laughs> at home. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, uh, no rain recorded at all for the Kimberley, Pilbara, Gascoyne interior, Goldfields, or out on the islands. In the Eucla district, Eucla itself recorded five mils. And then in the southwest land division forecast districts, in the central west, a fair few places had between one and three mils, but the most was four at Port Denison. In the lower west, a fair few places had one to four. But the ones that topped it were Tamala Park with seven and Wanneroo with five. In the southwest, Carlotta six and Vass ten, Walpole Forestry five. In the southern coastal region, Albany Airport ten, Bremer Bay twenty-five, Shane Beach six, Dalyup Park twenty mils over two days, Denbarker thirteen, Erinair twenty-eight, Esperance twelve to twenty-eight, Gardner seven. King River 10, Many Peaks 7, Mount Barker 10, Mount Howick 24, Munglen up 13, Narracup West 7, Oakmarsh Farm 25, Pleasant Valley 19, Tolina Downs 24 and the Duke 41 mils over two days. And then in the central wheat belt and Great Southern, there was nothing above two mils. Great. Thank you for that, Richard. It is 21 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along. Let's get into this conversation about centre pivots now because a farmer in Western Australia's Great Southern Region says his cattle now have green feed all year round. 
thanks to centre pivot irrigation. That's where equipment rotates around a pivot and crops are watered with the sprinklers. And you normally end up with a big circular area being irrigated. Now, lots of centre pivots are now being used in WA's north, where there's a lot of water around, but they're less common in the state's southwest land division. Kim Lester says he's lucky he farms at many peaks just north of Albany because it gets a lot of rain that can be utilised by this new centre pivot irrigator. Uh, We introduced it last year. Uh, It was installed in October. Uh, It first started using the water in mid-November and uh, we planted sorghum under it, which we were grazing January just gone right through till the end of March. So in many peaks... It's, uh, it's certainly a high rainfall area. Just how much of a difference has the centre pivot made where you've been using it for that grazing? Oh, well, I guess we have high rainfall through the growing season, so pretty much from March through till November. But we have that three-month period, uh, end of summer, early autumn, where often we can have dry spells. So it's just given us the ability to water the crops under the pivot during that period uh, to give us year-round green feed. And what difference has that made for the weight gain and for the economies that you've been running with your cattle? What it's changed is we're not having to feed those cattle in that period, so we're not having to buy fodder in. Uh, the cattle that are under the pivot are catered for, so the savings basically in the, in the reduced costs of, of feed. And how much are you saving in feed? Uh, well, pretty much this year we, we grazed 1,000 head for about a bit over 10 days those animals were eating sort of up to 20 kilos a day of fodder, so a a pretty good saving. And is there a qualitative difference in the feed that you're able to get keeping them on green as opposed to bringing something else in? Probably not massive quality difference. We, We do buy pretty good feed, hay and pellets, so quality not massive. It's just, yeah, more that it's a cheaper, cheaper form. There were some comments being made today about getting the correct balance of nutrients and minerals, etc., into the diet of the cattle. Has it made any difference on that front? I think it will going forward when we get some different multi-species crops in there. At the moment, we only just we grew sorghum, reasonably high quality. We made a few mistakes with uh, grazing a bit late and, and various other things, but... Yeah, going forward we hope that we'll be able to deal with a lot of those issues trace element wise through the forage by growing multi-species stuff and irrigating it. And firstly will you be continuing with the pivot and what do you think you'll be taking forward and will you be continuing with the sorghum during that same period? Yeah definitely continuing with the pivot, pretty excited about what we can grow uh, year round. The sorghum probably not, uh, it was probably more of a weed control choice and a, and a quick cash crop I suppose you would call it. So, yeah, looking forward to getting some exciting uh, perennial stuff in under it and and having year-round green food uh, of a high quality. Any ideas on what specifically you'll be putting in there? Uh, At this stage it'll be uh, perennial ryegrass and then a couple of uh, perennial clovers. So that'll be a start and then we'll, we'll go from there. 16 to 1, that's Kim Lester who runs grass-fed cattle at Many Peaks, which is about 40 kilometres northeast of Albany. And he says he'll see how this centre pivot irrigator goes for the rest of the year before making a decision on getting another one. And I wonder, is this something that you've been looking at getting to help drought-proof your business? It's certainly not for everyone. Uh, first up, 
It costs a lot of money, between about one hundred and thirty and one hundred and seventy thousand dollars for a centre pivot irrigator that waters forty hectares. And secondly, you need to have access to water. Kent Rochester farms just a few kilometres away from Kim Lester, and he says at the moment centre pivots are not an option for him. If we can find the water, or we can work out a. Uh, a cost-effective water source I'd love to, even in a small scale, just, if nothing else, just for a play. Is water the obstacle that's stopping you from making that decision? Yeah, pretty much. Once our lake systems fill up or we can um, we can find a decent water source, I'm, I'm sure we'll have a go in, in a small way at least and try to fill that feed gap. I don't quite understand. So your property's relatively close by why is it that you don't have access to the same water what what, what exactly is that uh, Kim's got a pretty good catchment and a pretty good uh, sort of clay area to make a dam we've got a, a fairly good lake system also but a lot of deep sand before the clay and, and the catchment sort of a lot of shallow catchment so we're trying to get all the water in one spot and in a good storage spot is a bit of a challenge so we're we're working on it and trying to figure out a, a cost-effective way to get, get that water source, but we're not quite as, as lucky as Kim is here. So even in areas with equivalent rainfall, it comes down to things like storage? Yeah, that's right. And how cost-effectively you can do that. I'd like to hope that we can find a way, but we're, we're just not as far along. Kent Rochester, who runs beef cattle on his farm at Many Peaks on the Albany coast. This is the Country Hour, 14 to 1. Nicola Callagher and her husband farm at Wandering, and that's about 120 kilometres southeast of Perth. Their niche is premium clover-fed beef, and they want to invest in centre pivot irrigation just to shore up year-round pasture feed on a Peel property just south of Perth. Nicola Callagher hopes irrigation will help that region develop a global reputation for beef, similar to the way Margaret River is now known for its wine. The investment in pivot irrigation means that theoretically we could water 10 mils every Tuesday. It's it's that reliability that can provide consistency and certainty for people who are looking to invest in a high quality, a premium food product for their business. And how close are you to getting that irrigation system working? We're just looking to go through the final approvals now with the Shire of Murray to make sure this is a um, like a development application that has been put through. And so basically once we get the final approvals from that, we, we can then move on to doing the groundwork and installing the pivots. So we already, obviously, you can imagine we'd, we've done already the, the water sampling and the soil sampling and um, we're basically at that stage now to start it's very exciting we're we're nearly there we're nearly there and where will you be getting the water from and what we have we have the groundwater in the nambilup water catchment area there so this water without would otherwise discharge into the ocean and so what's good about this water is that it's just ever so slightly saline and so it can't be used to go grow any other sort of um, plants or you know like tomatoes or whatever it would be too damaging for them but it's okay for pasture and so we could actually use this water to grow the pasture that will then in itself build up the soil profiles and really help to 
really combine the soils together to really hold on to any nutrients that go through and also this is what we look to prove is that we will actually help to improve that area of the environment there so we can ultimately develop a business case for others in uh, other farmers in the area to use innovative foliar fertigation application for pasture to reduce granular fertilization on the soil just how important is it to be able to retain that same quality of pasture feed year round for your cattle? Does it make a big difference to your customers? Oh, our customers really are seeking to have that year round pasture fed product. From the marketing, uh, the research that we've done, consumers are really paying a lot of attention to how their product, their food products are produced. Um, And especially when we come down to um, ethical handling of our of our animals and also then the consumption of, of those animals consumers then have certainty that they have a brand that they can trust and then we can actually extend that across different food and for providers and from your research so far how do the economics of this kind of irrigation system stack up what will they mean to your bottom line as a business to our bottom line as a business it means that we can actually provide long-term certainty for the beef industry I think that certainly following COVID, I think, well, we can all see a lot of people have really paid a lot of attention to where and how their food is produced. And um, having a project like this that will be what we are hoping to be is a showcase for agriculture and certainly in the Peel. And just as we all recognise Margaret River to be a magnificent place for wines, we are looking to bring Peel to be acknowledged globally as a premium beef production area. Nicola Kelleher is a premium beef producer based in Peel, the Peel region, and she was speaking to Angus McIntosh. Ten to one. And as you probably know, the majority of Western Australia's centre pivot irrigators are in the north of the state. In fact, there are more along the West Kimberley coast than in any other region in Australia. And the last time we looked into this, there were at least 80 centre pivots covering about 3,200 hectares of land on at least 12 stations. The landholders are basically trying to drought-proof their properties and optimise farm yields. Interestingly, mining giant Rio Tinto was an early adopter of these centre pivots. 11 years ago, the company was mining below the water table at its iron ore operations just near Tom Price in the Pilbara. And Rio couldn't just pump the water out into a nearby creek it had to find an environmentally suitable solution. So it chose to set up an agricultural project using 17 centre pivots to produce fodder crops. Irrigation system expert Ivor Gaylard was involved in the work. They were trying to get rid of water, but they weren't allowed to overwater because of the environment. And really the best way to get rid of the most amount of water without overwatering was to produce optimal crops. And so um, the scheduling uh, models that we used were geared around optimising crop production. But, you know, in another situation where you're trying to save water, the same principle applies. You're trying to get the best production from, from every drop of water. So what we're doing there is taking the crop growth models, we're taking forecast weather, we're taking local actual weather. We're factoring how much 
has been irrigated every day and a whole range of different variables based on soil type, etc. And using that, processing that and presenting it in a user-friendly way so that it's very, very clear how much water you can put on, on each location to optimise that production. Not every pastoralist has a uh, big mining operation sitting on their land that has the dewatering process. How much groundwater do you need for this to work? Um, look, it's very dependent on where you're at, you know, the weather at your location, the crop you're growing and several other factors. But roughly as a rule of thumb for the Rio Tinta project, for every uh, gigalitre of water, so that's a 1,000 megalitres of water per year, we could do uh, 50 hectares of cropping as a rule of thumb. And, and I think in a lot of the um, Pilbara region, Pilbara and Kimberley, um, with, the, with the weather there, if you're growing a year-round fodder crop, like roads grass or something, that's a good rule of thumb. Whether one centre pivot is a viable project is really dependent on how valuable the produce is um, for your location. And for some people, having one pivot is definitely worth it because they can drought-proof their property to a certain extent and uh, provide yard feed and, and that sort of thing. Uh, for others, it, one centre pivot would probably be a bit small. It's not enough to put on a, a team of people to manage it. So it comes down to you know economics of, of scale in the end. But that's you know probably less than a pivot. It's getting getting marginal. So less than than a, a gigalitre of water a year, you're getting more and more marginal and and probably need to look quite carefully at the economics before launching into that. If you were to basically get into it for a basic operation, let's just say one centre pivot and maybe a year's worth of production, is it possible to judge what kind of costs you'd be looking at? Yeah, look, the capital costs vary. I mean, it's um, probably by the time you've put in your centre pivot and put in some infrastructure, you're looking at 300,000 plus. And if you have to sink a ball, that's another couple of hundred grand. So you're looking at upwards of half a million bucks to get that established. So, you know, really one of the big factors in it is is your water. So how deep is your water? How What's the water quality like? Is it under pressure at all? If it's coming up under pressure, that's great. You don't have to pump. And um, places like Pardue are fortunate in being located where, where there's enough pressure to run the pivots without any pumping. Rio Tinto, on the other hand, pump from quite a deep, depth because they're mining there and but it, the cost of that is covered by the mining so it's not really factored in if you're having to drill a bore and pump it the depth to water has a big influence on the economics so that's that's got to be factored in and then then the other side of it is is quality so what's the water quality like if it's too saline you won't be able to grow anything if it's moderately saline that's going to limit the actual crops that you can grow and the fresher it is obviously the more options you've got. From 2010 with Rio Tinto what kind of success have they had like they obviously run annual hay production now don't they from it? Yeah very much so I mean Rio's economics are complicated in that it's tied up with the mine but if you even aside from that it's been a very successful project you know if you combine the two projects which they run as as one sort of operation uh the marindu and the maldi 
they produce a lot of hay. They they do roads, grass, open hay in the winter, uh, winter uh, wheat straw, and they're in the research phase of looking at biofuels as well and seeing uh, how they can fit that into the picture. They've tried lucerne. It had a lot of issues with pests, so I don't think they're doing much lucerne anymore. But overall, um, all things factored in, that, that's been very successful and it's supplied a lot of pastoralists in the Pilbara and Kimberley with much-needed uh, fodder crops. So I think they're quite happy with how it's turned out. Ivor Gaylard, who is the co-founder of Swan Systems, speaking to James Liveris about Rio Tinto's use of centre pivot irrigators as a solution to having too much water on a mine site. His high-tech company now works with pastoralists to optimise their water use. If you want to read more, there is a story online for you. Search ABC Rural Centre Pivot. And Deep Herd has just put out a guide to year-round crops and pastures in the rangelands. It's a new free booklet. It runs through irrigated crop and forage production here in WA. You can pick up a hard copy at the local ag departments in the northwest of WA or download it online, agric.wa.gov.au. Three to one to the markets. And at the Muche sheep sale this morning, 11,465 sheep and lambs were penned for sale. So numbers down about 1,200 on last week. John Testro has been keeping an eye on the sale. And, John, I hear it was another strong sale. Yeah, good afternoon, Belinda, uh, particularly on the prime lambs. We'll run through the lamb section first. In the lamb market, the light 0 to 12 kilo lambs, they sold to restockers at rates firm on last week. At from 40 to 75 dollars, the 13 to kilo uh, to 16 kilo range to uh, graziers they used 10 dollars. They sold for 59 to 125. 17 to 20 kilo range eased five dollars and sold from 115 to 149 at rates averaging 7.15 cents a kilo carcass weight. 21 to 22 kilo range sold to the trade and feedlotters from 140 to 175, up by eight dollars at near 7.40 cents. Prime lambs, 23 kilo plus. They were outstanding quality today, Belinda. They sold from 170 to 220 a head, up by $10 at near 800 cents a kilo carcass weight. And was certainly the pick of the lambs yarded. Ram lamb supply remained pretty constant with their heavier types at 156 to $170 a head, firm at near 650 cents. Uh, the same money for the uh, better heavy hoggets, and they sold from 168 to 195, again an $8 rise there. New mutton market uh, included a mix of weights and grades with rates uh, $8 easier on the boners, possibly because there was one processor missing there today. But uh, the medium weight boners, 23 to 24 kilos, sold from 114 to 140 a head. Prime trade weight used in the 25 to 30 kilo range. They sold from 140 to, 80, uh, to 180 at uh, 600 cents. And the better quality heavy 30 kilo plus sold at 185 to 194 at nearer 570 cents. Best heavy weathers, they received 600 cents a kilo carcass weight and sold from 140 to 206. And uh, very heavy rams dropped $100 on last week's amazing sale where we saw rams up to $250, but uh, nearer 130 to 150 today. They must have made all their sausages last week. But uh, just to finish off, Belinda, just a heads up that the uh, state's two major processes closed for uh, maintenance in late June and all of July. So if you're looking to sell uh, and gain maximum competition, 
get in soon. I'm John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the ABC. John, thank you for going through those details on ABC WA. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.